0: Welcome to The Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. On today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Coeck is joined by Margot Tirado. Margot is a psychotherapist, TEDx speaker, and author of the book, Own Your Voice, Eight Emotional Habits That Empower Women. Each chapter teaches women one of eight emotional habits that will embolden her to use her voice powerfully and effectively. The content from the book is the result of 10 years of researching the emotional habits of women and learning which habits were holding women back and which habits empowered women to have a bigger voice in the world. Margo loves being able to share these insights with women across the U.S. and helping change the gender parity gap. For fun and frills, Margo dances flamenco and loves cooking gourmet meals for her friends, hubby, and kids. Hi, Margo.
1: Thanks so much
2: for coming on the Alabaster Jar and talking with us. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so excited um, and really excited about what we're about to talk about as I've listened to your podcast. um, I'm always inspired by the conversations that you lead as it relates to women and leadership.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, um, I'm ready to, to dive right in. And I'd love to kind of start at the beginning, your uh, your childhood in New Mexico. Now, the listeners can't see this, but as I'm sitting with you and I can see uh, your office, you've got a cactus there in the background. And I should say for about a year and a half or so, my husband and I lived outside of Albuquerque in a little place called Placidas. Wow. Yes. So, as I was reading your book, which we will definitely talk about, your own voice, um, I uh, I was imagining some of those stories, remembering uh, just the beautiful landscape there in New Mexico. But you know, so much of our lives uh, are framed, or as you talk about it, we learn some habits, right? in our childhood that, that impact us then as adults. So could you
2: talk a little about your childhood there in New Mexico? Yes. Um, and, and I tell this story in my book, it's the book, it's titled Own Your Voice. Um, I tell this story that I'm about to share with your listeners. So to, so I was born in Santa Fe, New Mexico, but I grew up in a small town called Española, which is not that far from Placitas. And just a fun fact for your listeners, uh, Española is also known as the low-rider capital of the world. And if you've never been to New Mexico, it helps to know that it's it's this beautiful assimilation of indigenous and uh, Latin, Latina, Latino, Spanish, Anglo, Saxon, American cultures. So there's the backdrop. So I was 16 years old, and I had just got my first job to work at a bakery. It was the end of my first week, and my boss, Miguel, came in to check on me. So I made a beeline towards him, eager to express a few suggestions that I thought would be helpful. When I was done with these suggestions, Miguel looked at me from head to toe with a look of disgust and his arms crossed, and he said, Esa es una chingona, no? Let me translate that for you. It means Man, you're a chingona, aren't you? Just to create a little bit of context, chingona is a word used to put assertive women in their place in my culture. It would be the equivalent of bossy, right? And so here I am in this moment. I'm trying to take initiative because I want to be a valuable employee, and instead of encouraging instead of, instead of receiving encouragement for this behavior, I'm told I'm too bossy. I'm Chingona, and I'm overstepping. And my and here cult- you
1: are, you're only 16 years old and thank I'm you 16. Yeah. And oh my word, you, you want a thank you from your
2: boss, but, uh, yeah, you
1: get the opposite. Yeah.
2: And so it's, you know, it's, and it's, this is not just something that happens in my girl, in my culture as a woman of color, being part of the, uh, Latin community but this happens to us women in general In in my culture the term just a little interesting piece to note here in my culture the term chingona again a, a word used to put women in their place uh, I want you to think about the the masculine equivalent the masculine equivalent of chingona is chingon and so when men are called chingon it's used as a compliment. It's like an applause. Yay for you. So growing up, there's these mixed messages about what it means to be a woman and to be assertive compared to what I observed, uh, the same message being given to men. And so I think as a young girl, I really—I think I was naturally strong and bold, um, but I had mixed feelings and a little bit of shame around what that meant.
1: Yeah, you talk about uh, being teased, um, being, and that um, I, I kind of broke my heart as, as I was reading that in, in your book, because I think um, my own experience is that often as adults, we can kind of ignore the teasing that happens between kids as not that important, but um,
2: at times those words can hurt. Yeah, and they they shape how we begin to think about ourselves. Um, and depending on the word, not only might you bring in those words as, you know, is this who I am? And you've got to do a little bit of reflection on, on how that's shaping you. It can also make a person feel really small. In this situation with my boss, the end result was uh, I felt like I had done something wrong. But again, this story that I'm telling you about the bakery is really the something that happens to women everywhere.
1: Yes, well, and but it doesn't. It your story doesn't certainly end there. It jumps though to flamenco dancing. <laughs> so I had to reread that uh, part of the book. Like, whoa, wait a minute! And that sounded really, really fun. You found your voice and. Uh, the book, as I misspoke earlier and you corrected me, thank you. Own your voice. You find part of your voice, at least in dancing In dancing this way. Yeah. Wow. And I think (laughs) that you're not going to find me out on the floor. I just, just want to tell all the listeners that's not going to happen, but please tell us, (laughs) Margo, how it, uh, how this dancing helped,
2: helped you find your assertiveness. Yeah, it, absolutely. It helped me find my assertiveness, my voice, uh, build uh, inner confidence, not just in my my language or my voice, but also in the way I express myself in a more assertive or powerful way. So when I was in my early 40s, my children were leaving a college and um, I decided I want to Learn this dance I thought it was really passionate and fun and I'd always wanted to learn it it's a really common form of dance school where I come from in New Mexico and so for anybody who might not know flamenco is a combination of these intricate upper arm movements combined with the percussive elements of the feet and there's little plates metal little metal plates that come that are at the bottom of the shoe that create a percussive element So I just joined flamenco really to have some fun and to have an outlet. But what I learned really fast is that a lot of the things that I was learning in flamenco, I could also apply to everyday life. And I I tell you of this story that it was one of those moments. One day I walked into class and I was wanting to learn a very specific style of dance. Flamenco dance is called the solea. And Sole is this more heavy and slow, um, more serious type of dance. It had been a long time that I'd been in class. I show up, we had a guest speaker, her name was Maria. And so I'm on the dance floor and I'm learning the choreography and I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in my element and we're about 15 minutes into class and she says, no, no, everybody stop. I want you to sit on the floor. And as you can imagine, I was irritated because I was on a roll and Um, I was really, uh, my muscles were just kind of waking up and coming out of hibernation. But I'm glad that she stopped us and I will never ever forget what she said. She says, if you want to dance Solea style, you have to have Duende. Duende means you have to know who you are and you have to be able to confidently express it to others. You can learn all the dance steps, you can work with the best guitarist, you can master the choreography, you can have a gorgeous dress. But if you want to dance Soleil style, you have to embody who you are and know who you are as a person and then express that to yourself through through the expression of the dance. Otherwise, it's just a dance. And, I remember, and I, I remember something else she said. She goes, in fact, the best solia dancers will get into the space of their audience and they'll take up space with their body and their presence and that duende as if they're saying, I'm here, I'm visible, my soul, I'm in plain sight. Do you see me? You have to be able to be willing to express who you are at the core and reveal it. Then you can dance, Solea, And Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a holy moment for me, to be sure, because all I could think about was, that's what I need to learn to do in life as a woman, as a leader, as a woman who at that point in my life was moving into a different level of thought leadership. My training as a psychotherapist, I could do that all day long. But what I had really been wanting to or had been in the trajectory of changing was getting out there and speaking more and sharing some of the principles that I teach my women in class or in my coaching clients about how to have a powerful presence and have a strong voice. And so anyway, this is this moment where, again, I I go to flamenco and there's this intersection of what it means to be um, strong and powerful and use my voice and that it starts from the inside, that I had to know who I was at the core first.
1: That's such a powerful story. Um, and did did that come up then uh, in your uh, TEDx talk that you um, that you gave in Chicago, how to quiet a shame producing toxic
2: voice? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, again, there's been a huge intersection about in my life around dancing and what I've learned through that, what it means to be a strong woman. Uh, And it certainly shows up in, in other areas where I am not just telling my story, but also helping other women tell theirs. And so I think what you're referring to is a moment that I had just absolute and pure panic, Um, I was getting ready to give a TED talk at Grant Park Chicago, and part of that process includes working with a coach. However, I chose to work with three coaches. Most people only hire one. And looking back, I now realize I did this because honestly, I was terrified. I was terrified I would fail and I'd make a fool out of myself in front of the audience and cameras and my friends and family. I think there was a part of me that secretly hoped that working with three coaches would keep me from failure. Um, I'm also quite the perfectionist and I'm trying to recover from that. But because of that, I put a lot of pressure on myself and that also played into the reason I was feeling quite terrified. Well, anyway, after each coaching session, I would often feel a little bit less confident about my ability to get up on the TED Talk and and do a great job. And there was one talk in particular that, for whatever reason, left me feeling insecure and anxious. My stomach was in knots. And so I feel even a little embarrassed at this time telling the story, but it's a true story. After a coaching session, I was so worried about whether or not I could do that. My fear and my anxiety was so out of control that I went downstairs where my husband was at and I said, honey, I keep hoping you might have a heart attack or something. And Frank, my husband goes, what? And I go, well, if you were to have a heart attack or something, then I would have a Legitimate excuse to get out of this TED talk, because I would have to be in the hospital with you, and I could tell people that I that you needed me.
1: And I'm so looked- glad you shared that because, I, as I read that, I just thought that there's such honesty and authenticity in that, um, and and I, uh, I I feel in a way I, I could relate. I think probably all our listeners, to one degree or another. Can relate to feeling like, oh, I wish there was just some kind of crisis that would get me out of this really scary moment.
2: Yeah, stepping into leadership is hard. Putting yourself out there, taking up space with your voice and your perspective is, is hard. Um, and, and, and when we feel that kind of fear that can come up when we assert our views and put ourselves out there, you know, sometimes that fear can override our logic in that moment I had already spoken to people in the thousands I had been on the radio podcast this wasn't my first gig but again I I, as as I continue this work I notice that it's just part of the process sometimes we have to deal with those fears that come up when we put ourselves out there and try to make a difference in the world yeah yeah
1: Um, I was at a uh, conference this past week, and I was talking, it was a male pastor, he and I were talking, and uh, I'm not sure how the subject came up, but he talked about uh, the difference of men and women when they go to apply for a job. And you mentioned this also uh, in in your book, that you were talking about confidence here and perfectionism and all that, and how women tend not to apply for a job unless they feel they are at 100% qualification for all the things, whereas men might, and I don't know what the what the details are, I think you would know, but it came from a Hewlett-Packard 2008 uh, survey. Maybe men 50% or something like that. Oh, yeah, I think I have several of these um, qualities, so I'll just go ahead and apply. And um, you know, that that is just an amazing study, and I don't doubt that that reality, but I'm kind of thinking, well, how do we navigate that reality then as women? What do you say to women, given that that's maybe how society uh,
2: pushes us, you know, to be perfectionists and everything? Yeah. In this Hewlett Packard report, I believe it came out in 2008. um, What they found was that If men saw 10 qualifications, but they only had 60, or six of those qualifications, they would still apply for the job. In contrast, if women saw that list of of those 10 same qualifications, and they only had six, they would not apply. They would only apply if they met 100% of the qualifications. So in a nutshell, you know the study revealed that women are more likely to overestimate the job task and underestimate our ability to accomplish that task. So thinking back to my TED Talk, that principle really applied. Now, I was fully capable of doing a, ta- a TED Talk. I understood my content, but I was overestimating the task in that moment and underestimating underestimating my ability to do it. And and it's interesting too, because, because of this difference, it's likely that underqualified and underprepared men are more likely to take risks and apply for jobs or positions of leadership and influence. And overqualified and overly prepared women are more likely to hold back from taking risks, pursuing opportunities that will put them in positions of influence and power, and that's that's the importance of this this research and and how we can use this data as women to be more aware of these emo- these habits that we are more prone to than men. And by habits, if I can just jump in here yeah, a little please, bit, please I, so,
1: yeah. yeah.
2: Habit a habit is a pattern or something that we do that's on autopilot. So if you think about it, I can walk into my bathroom, brush my teeth, and while I'm brushing my teeth, I can grab the clothes that I'm going to wear for the day, throw them in my bed, walk away, return to my bathroom, wash, resp- wash and rinse and spit. That's a habit. I don't have to think about brushing my teeth. I do it without thinking about it. So we all have emotional habits. Things we do automatically that fly under the radar where we are not aware of it. So for example, are we, and we look at this Hewlett Packard study, are we, and I ask myself and I ask all the women out there, are we in a habit of not pursuing things because we have a tendency or are in a pattern of only applying to things we feel we can do perfectly or 100% of the time? And so this data uh, and can empower us and and help us go wait a second let me take a pause here and think about those habits that I'm engaged in that might be influencing my role in my church and my community or whatever you are being called to do in your world
1: yeah there's a phrase we often hear imposter syndrome where we we are afraid even as we're doing something that someone is going to realize we don't know w- what we're about. We're kind of like an imposter here. We don't really belong. How how do we change our our habits or what might be some tools that our listeners could could take away and begin to practice to to have better habits of thought?
2: Hmm. You know that 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 topic or conversation around imposter syndrome, I think, is very relevant for women, it certainly has been true in my life um, because I worked, had, I've worked. i had to work through uh, not just being a woman and what that means as I've stepped into opportunities, but also as a woman of color and how that has shaped my own self-view of, of feeling like an imposter. And when you think about being an imposter, it's really about feeling like you don't belong there, or you're not qualified. And so when I when I think about this idea of, you know, are we making decisions out of the belief that we are less than? That I think one of the best antidotes to that is taking some time to understand who you are. And let me talk a little bit more about that. I went to Wheaton College. And again, keep in mind, I'm 57. This was back in the 80s. I went to Wheaton College. And I grew up in New Mexico, where what is typical is we wear bright colors and embroidered shirts and turquoise and big hats and leather belts. And it's it's part of the culture of New Mexico. And when I went to Wheaton College, which I loved, I just I've had the best experience there. It was the first time in my life that I had really felt like a minority. In fact, I represented less than 1% of the people of color at the time. And I hadn't traveled a lot up into that point. Um, And so all of a sudden, I'm at Wheaton College, and it's a predominantly more white, suburban culture. And it was, I was in the land of like nautical stripes and, um, and and no sunshine, I mean, and
1: and not good food. I just have to say, as you're describing, um, New Mexico and the turquoise jewelry and and all of that, I'm also thinking of hatch green chili. I just have to tell you, I'm sorry, but (laughs) you got to mention the food too. And I think Serene's nodding her head here as well. Yeah. Coming from. Uh, a neighboring state. Like they just, you're, that's not going to happen. No ristras uh, there uh, hanging on the uh, porches of the beautiful homes in Wheaton.
2: No ristras, no chilrianos And I, you know, I hadn't traveled a lot. And so it was, it was a real eye opener to me. And what I began to notice was I am really different. I mean, I look different, I dress different, I think different. And, and we all have these experiences, depending on the culture that we come from. I'm not the only person who experienced this. So what I began to do to fit in was I started wearing penny loafers and cardigans and pale pink and pearls. And let me tell you, I did not fit in. I looked like I was wearing somebody else's clothing. But looking back, I think it, at the heart of that, I, I didn't. I felt like I didn't belong there. I felt like an imposter. And somehow I think in the back of my head, if I did these things to fit in, if I became a chameleon, rather than just kind of owning the bright, bold colors of, of who I am naturally, um, it, it would have, first of all, been more authentic. But in my own personal growth, as I've moved back and really taken the time to get to know who I am, what's my personality, understand my my cultural heritage, my racial identity, my my gender identity as a woman, really getting to know who I am has really gone a long way in helping me own it and be who I am versus who I think I should be, and that may seem like a simple shift. Or a simple, it may, let me let me just say that may seem simple, but it works. It goes a long way in knowing who you are and accepting you are having that don, duende, having the ability to own who you are and express you who you are, um, it goes a long way in overcoming the myth that you don't belong in that circle. Yeah, you talk about. Um
1: this assertiveness, this, uh, developing the assertiveness. And then in your book, you do acknowledge, you know, a lot of people don't like conflict. Most people don't like conflict, but when, when you assert yourself, that's a change in the dynamics. And, uh, you talk about how that can create meaningful tension, which I loved that concept. Can you talk a little bit more about this meaningful tension? Yeah. Yeah.
2: So first, it it helps to understand that women face more pushback for being assertive, for asserting their voice, their perspectives, their values, compared to men. Um, We've all experienced that, and the research also indicates that that is true. So because of that, when women are assertive, they tend to feel like they've done something wrong. But there's nothing fundamentally wrong with being assertive. In fact, it's a very healthy and very biblical way of communicating. Um, so, but because of those experiences that not just myself, but probably many of the women listening in today have felt, when sometimes when we're assertive, we feel like we've done something wrong. That comes from many, many years of those moments like I mentioned earlier when I was put in my place and called chingona for behavior that was really strong and, and, and valuable. Um, so when, so when we, we're practicing being assertive, sometimes it brings up those old feelings. But tension, and, and when we're assertive, often sometimes it can lead to tension. But tension is not a bad thing when it's created to promote important change. Tension is not a bad thing when it's created to promote important change. So for example, or and also to protect something we value. Right? So for example, I value respect for women um, and the absence of sexism. And so if I hear somebody saying something that feels derogatory towards women or sexist, I will speak up and assert my perspective on that because I want to promote change. I want to create change because I value the absence of sexism or respect for for equality.
0: So Margo, when you talk about tension and when we might exert uh, assertiveness, there's this backlash that can happen. Sometimes we can put ourselves out there, overcome fear, and then still get met with a pushback that you just mentioned. How do we handle that? You you actually have a coaching moment in your book um, on how to handle this. Could you talk us through that a little bit?
2: Absolutely. First, you know, start by affirming the behavior, you know. Even though it can be hard, be hard to create tension and or conflict and to manage the discomfort that can come from do, doing so at times, remind yourself that what you have to say matters and that it needs to be a part of the conversation and the equation. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with having a firm opinion. Go ahead.
0: Well- what about when we do this and it doesn't go as planned? Because I can't help but thinking that this is something that for some women, they it feels like a new practice. And mm-hmm. it can take a lot to sort of build yourself up to that moment. I think of you as a 16-year-old approaching your boss with ideas, or then, you know, as an adult preparing for your TED Talk, there's there's some some aspect of planning, thinking, preparation, building yourself up to use your voice, to uh, speak out. And then there's a chance that it doesn't go like we planned it. It's, uh, you know, we either get pushed back or maybe we realize after the fact, OK, I used my voice, but maybe what I said wasn't the best thing to say. Um, and we have to, you know, get back on the horse, so to speak. We have to keep trying. What does that look like to overcome the fear, even if it doesn't go as planned the first couple of times that we try this?
2: Oh my gosh, great question. And I really think you're talking about two different things. The first thing is the tension that we feel sometimes as women, when we realize by speaking up, we've created tension, right? And so my first response to that is to ask yourself, well, what is it that I'm trying to protect? What is it that I value that makes it worth it? Right. So, um, And I also think that, I, I don't know, honestly, that it ever gets a lot easier, meaning tension is uncomfortable. That's just, it is, it's uncomfortable. Give yourself permission to just allow that feeling to happen. You know, you're, you're stronger than you think. I have certainly said some things that I knew might have made people feel uncomfortable in the room because I needed to say something that I thought was quite important and worth saying and worth attention. tension. And of course, when I left the room, like many women, I, I stirred in my mind about, uh, the, and I thought about the discomfort that I felt as a result of doing so. That's okay. It, it, just allow yourself to feel it. You're not, doing any, you're not necessarily doing anything wrong. Just because you create tension doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. What's interesting is if you interview 50 men, 45 of them would not struggle with that same pattern of feeling bad about being assertive. We as women feel that much more so because of the many, many, many messages that we've received that we can't be both feminine and assertive, feminine and strong, feminine and bold, feminine and chingona, feminine and a leader, a boss. The second part that you're referring to is the feeling of failure. And that is, Boy, I spoke up and I don't feel entirely, I wish I'd have done it better. Wish I'd have done it perfect. That's always my thought. I wish I would have done it better. I wish I would have said it like this. We all have that experience. My gosh. Uh, um. Whew, yes. Um, that's the feeling of did I do it good enough? Will I fail? Will people disagree with me? Will they challenge My perspective. And and that is more about managing the fear that can come from asserting your voice, putting yourself out there, stepping into leadership, or trying to make changes that are just ultimately important to you. And I I often hear women say to me in in my office as a counselor and a coach when I'm encouraging them to practice the, the habit of assertiveness, they say, oh, you know, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, or I don't want anybody to think I'm bossy. You know, these are real challenges that we as women face when we are speaking up and sharing our views. But we need to be a part of the conversation. We need to be a part of the equation. Especially because if God has uh,
1: gifted us with responsibilities, has invited us to step into areas of responsibility uh, in relation to his kingdom work, um, which, and I'm using that in the most expansive sense, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then we're, we're obligated to, uh, to use those gifts and not, you know, and not bury them. You know, as you were, uh, describing about asserting our ideas. One of the things you also mention in the, in the book is our body language, how important our body language is. And, you know, at here we are talking on like a zoom kind of um, structure and all of us have, oh my gosh, I think we just have zoom fatigue. But one positive thing about zoom that I have found is that we're all the same size. And I like to say I'm vertically challenged, you know, I'm just not that tall. And I meet people now, I've I've met people only on Zoom. And then when I see them face to face, I realize like, wow, you're you're really tall, <laughs> you know, but when we're all on Zoom, we're all the size of a postage stamp. And there's something equalizing about that. And others in leadership have, women in leadership have talked about this reality that women can be in a space in, in an equal size as men when we're, when we're on Zoom, but when we're face to face, our bodies don't take up the space uh, that male bodies tend to do. So um, what, how, how do we use our body language uh, in, in a room to also help us assert our, ourselves?
2: Yeah, and so um, I spoke about a concept earlier that I learned from flamenco called duende. And duenda is, is, of course, it's understanding who you are and then being able to confidently express it. But it also means making sure that your body language matches the confidence that you have inside that you're wanting to exude. And I began to think as I've been speaking more uh, at conferences around how I put those things together, not just an inner confidence and the confidence of my words, but how my body also has to be consistent with my words, with my views. Because our gestures, our posture, they influence how other people perceive us. In fact, our body language will speak for us before we even utter a word. It can say, you know, I don't belong here. I'm not sure if I should be here or it can say, I am here, and I am a force to be reckoned with. And so in addition to really cultivating a sense of knowing who you are and cultivating your your perspective, your voice, um, when you're having conversations, whether it's in a Zoom meeting, or with a colleague, or a church member, make sure uh, that your body is also expressing, an assertive perspective. And so I always suggest to do a potty check. Take note of your posture. Make sure you're standing tall, not slouching. You know, Hold your head high and raise your chin. Be the first person to extend a handshake or start the conversation. Give firm eye contact. Use a strong tone in your voice. I naturally have much more of a soft tone. I've had to learn, especially in really important conversations, but I have to use a stronger, more firm tone. Um, all of these things may seem like small measures, but they, when your body says I feel confident, you are much more likely to have the results that you want with the person that you're having a conversation with. Now that that makes uh,
1: that makes so much sense, uh, and and we forget it. I, I feel like at times I, I kind of apologize my way into the room and I've really, I, I have to bring myself up short and say, nope, I, it, I I don't need to apologize for being here. I don't need to slouch into the room or kind of shrink away. Yeah, yeah. Um, as we're coming to the end of our, of our time, um, I just wonder, is there any final uh, if, if there's one thing, Margo, that you'd love for our listeners to hang on to amidst all this great, great stuff and encourage them to, uh, to, get, to get your book, um, what, what would that be, that one thing that, that they could begin practicing
2: even now? Mm-hmm. Simply, it's okay to let your voice be heard. doesn't have to be perfect doesn't always have to be confident or chingona. Just let it be heard. Just start there. You know, what you have to say matters because you matter. That's just, wonderful. Just start
1: there. That, yep. No, that, that is wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us and our listeners on Alabaster Jar. And uh, encourage everyone to get your book, to, to read it, and uh, the TED Talk as well to uh to find that uh and and maybe even pick up dancing i don't know that uh (laughs) i'm rethinking my decision maybe maybe i do need to get into that
2: oh my (laughs) goodness thank you for having
0: me you've been listening to another episode of the alabaster jar podcast if you enjoyed today's conversation with Margot Tirado, be sure to check out her book, Own Your Voice, which we have left a link to in today's episode description next week on the alabaster jar we are celebrating our one year birthday and we want you to join us for the celebration so be sure to tune in next tuesday for that episode we have a special surprise in store you don't want to miss it so subscribe share with a friend and join us back here next week for a brand new episode of the alabaster jar